The team at Subject ACT acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we broadcast from, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Welcome to Subject ACT with me, Hedda Murray. Subject ACT brings you stories from your local Canberra community and beyond, stories with a global dimension. Tonight we start our holiday season of Encore programs. Over the next four weeks we'll be bringing you the best of Subject ACT from our archives. This evening we're talking about migration and how our nation has historically responded to it. This interview with Dr John Minns from the ANU was first broadcast in 2019. With me in the studio is Dr John Minns, Associate Professor and Distinguished Educator from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU. Welcome, John. Thank you, Heather. Now, we're going to be talking about people on the move, mass migration, and how nations respond to this, particularly Australia. Now, because migration is such a huge subject, we'll focus on the years after World War II when there was mass migration around the globe. Do we know how many people were on the move after the war, John? Is there any clue to what was going on there? I'm not sure that I can give you an exact number, but certainly millions and millions of people. The Mm. war had a devastating effect in Europe uh, in particular, but also elsewhere in the world. So, for example, Japanese uh, went back to Japan from Korea after the war. Uh, There were, of course, uh, millions of people fled mainland China to Taiwan. Uh, there was the displacement of the Palestinians uh, following the setup of the State of Israel. And in Europe itself, it was uh, massive destruction had led to movement of people throughout the latter stages of the war in particular, but then after the war. Um, and you also have repatriation of populations or forcing out of some populations. So Germans, for example, in many parts of Europe, Eastern Europe in particular, were, went back to Germany, millions mm-hmm. of them. Um, in, Australia, in the Australian case, hundreds of thousands of people came, primarily from Europe, uh, following the government's decision to attempt to expand the population and rebuild the workforce in the Australian economy. Uh, so Australia was an important recipient for refugees and migrants more generally post-World War II. I remember my mother, who was a teenager in England after the war, in the mid-40s talking about um, rationing and labour shortages. Uh, what was going on in terms of the labour shortages? In the, in the case of Australia, there was an extreme labour shortage because Australia post-World War II, along with a variety of other countries, uh, went through a profound economic boom. Really, from the Second World War until 1973-74, you had uninterrupted economic growth at Mm. uh, previously unheard of levels. You didn't have a return to the 30s, as many feared, with high levels of unemployment. In fact, it was practically impossible uh, to get a job. Any government... Oh, really? Yeah, not to get a job, sorry. Practically impossible not to get a job. Um, Plenty of jobs as the economy expanded. So this was a period of great economic optimism, but the existing workforce simply wasn't enough 
in Australia. So the Australian government embarked on a period of mass migration. At that stage, until the late 1960s, it was still Australians of the right sort, Mm. as the government mentioned, which was essentially Europeans and preferably white Europeans. Uh, Initially, Eastern Eastern Europeans uh, from the Baltic countries were an important source uh, of migrants, increasingly then uh, Southern Europe, uh, Greece and Italy uh, became more important as Mm. well. Britain was still as an important source of migrants in that period, but as the British economy started to revive uh, from the war-torn chaos, uh, it uh, actually needed its own workforce, and fewer people over time actually wanted to leave Britain. So the mix changed towards more non-British migrants coming to Australia in that period. Right. So was Australia following its White Australia policy? It was. The White Australia policy remained even formally until 1966. Mm. Uh, That was primarily there to exclude Asians, of course. Mm. Uh, But uh, there was still very much a racist uh, basis to migration policy until that time. And some really would say that the White Australia policy wasn't fully dismantled until the Whitlam government of 1972. Yeah. If we just jump forward a little bit to around 1976 and uh, just, well, just before the Whitlam era ended and as we moved into the Fraser era at the end of the Vietnam War, Fraser famously opened Australia up to people fleeing from parts of Indochina, many of whom started arriving on our shores in boats. Mm. I guess they were the first boat people. They were. Uh, The first boat arrived in Darwin Harbour in 1976. And from then until about 1983, Australia accepted somewhere between 90 and 100,000 refugees from Indochina, primarily from Vietnam. Uh, One of the interesting facts, though, about that refugee flow is that most people didn't come by boat. In fact, of the 90 or 100,000, only about 2,000 came by really? boat. Yep. And uh, there were only about 50 to 60 boats that actually came. They were the most visible part of the refugee flows from Indochina. But the reason that they didn't primarily come by boat is that Australia adopted a very sensible, sane policy of processing those people, their applications for asylum in the countries to which they'd fled. So the transit countries. So people left Indochina very often by boat, very dangerous voyages to places like Malaysia and Thailand and elsewhere, uh, but particularly those two. And then Australian immigration officials, along with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, processed their applications in those pretty squalid camps Mm. in Malaysia and Thailand, and then the vast bulk of them flew safely to Australia. Oh, right. Something that we're not doing at the moment. No. Well, what's Australia's response to refugees and asylum seekers? What, what's it been since then? Well, the changes began to take place in 1992. Um, and that was because, well, a series of events were taking place. About 200 people came from Cambodia. Uh, just over 200 people came by boat from Cambodia In 1992, it was still a Labor government. It was the Keating Labor government. 
the Minister for Immigration was someone on the left of the Labor Party, supposedly, Jerry Hand, mm -hmm. and Labor imposed, for the first time ever in Australian history, a policy of mandatory detention. That is, if you came by boat, you were locked up, mm -hmm. uh, whatever the justice of your claim. The first time this had ever happened, uh, it didn't happen in relation to the Indochinese earlier immigration, which was much larger. And so the question that I guess emerges then is why, for this tiny number of people, the whole system was made so much more harsh and cruel mm. in 1992. And I think you've got to look at a couple of different circumstances going together. One is that the early 1990s was the worst recession that Australia had had since the 1930s. And people were were hurting in that period. It had also been after nearly a decade of economic restructuring of the Hawke and Keating government in which people felt that their, their futures were much more precarious. They had much less security than they had before. Uh, jobs weren't jobs for life anymore. There was a lot of privatisation of government, industry and so on. So there were economic difficulties that ordinary people were facing. The second thing was political, which is that the election was due in 1993. Uh -huh. And in 1992, Labor looked virtually certain to lose mm. the 93 election. And this was, I think, a populist attempt to try to dig up some xenophobic support okay. uh, to say, you know, these people shouldn't be allowed here. It's Australia first. Mm. Um, the third thing I think that's interesting is that in many cases around the world, when you get that attempt to draw populist, right-wing, maybe racist support uh, and turn it into votes in an election, very often it's simply directed at migrants. That's difficult to do in Australia for a couple of reasons. One is that a high level of immigration has been the foundation of economic growth in Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really since the Second World War, as yeah. we were just talking about, and that remained the case through the 70s, 80s and 90s. In the 1980s, there were a few political figures led by a former historian named Geoffrey Blaney who said that uh, there were too many Asian migrants coming to Australia. And a few yeah. people jumped on this bandwagon including then-opposition leader John Howard. Oh, really? In 1988, oh. he said perhaps the pace of Asian migration is too high. And the reaction, particularly from business, was very much opposed to this. Howard really suffered politically mm. and, in fact, lost the leadership of the Liberal Party to, to, John, um, to Andrew Peacock immediately afterwards, partly for this reason. Okay. And the reason for that is that the Australian system relied, one, on a high level of immigration, and two, on an economic orientation to Asia. So opposing uh, Asian migrants yeah. was undermining both of those pillars yeah. of the system. Yeah. And I think the political establishment learned that if what you were trying to do was to gather maybe racist, xenophobic support on that kind of populist anti-immigrant platform, you couldn't do it against migration and particularly against Asian migration. Mm. But you could it's, against refugees. Right. Because yes, the well. numbers were tiny. They had no economic impact whatsoever. 
Okay, so he ended up winning the 93 election. Well, Keating, Keating. Keating won the 93 election, not, I would say, primarily because of the harsher policies towards refugees, although I think they did trade on that to a certain extent. Primarily, he won the 93 election because John Hewson put forward the GST, the Goods and Services oh, Tax. Oh, that's the famous cake. Yeah, the How famous much is cake. The cake. That's right. Cost? Yes. That's right. So they found themselves in power unexpectedly. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that was the start of the sort of race to the bottom yeah. between the major parties in getting harsher and harsher policies towards yeah. refugees. Well, soon after that, in 1996, we had Pauline Hanson entering the scene. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about Australia being swamped by Asians, which is a rather hard right attitude. This was 96, but then again in 2016, she came back saying we're being swamped by Muslims. Multiple swampings. Yeah, multiple multiple swampings. What's the backstory here uh, Mm. to this racist fear-mongering? Well, I think, again, I think... Hansen was a, and is, uh, an attempt to sort of draw down deeply into some of the xenophobic and racist sentiments that still exist in the Australian community and to connect it to this precariousness of people's lives as they see it. But also, I think, to connect it to what some people, particularly some older white Australians, feel is a cultural shift uh, that they're uncomfortable with, mm. that uh, that things have gone too far in some ways to the left towards multiculturalism and they're not comfortable with that. I think connecting those economic circumstances to the cultural circumstances is what she's tried to trade on. The problem for establishment politicians, though, for the mainstream parties in trading in the same way is that in doing so they are really upsetting things about Australian society that, that are really crucial to keeping it going. Mm. Migration, multiculturalism. It's multicultural in fact, if not in policy. And you can't put the genie back into the bottle and no. go back to a white Australia of the 1950s no. or early 1960s. It's not going to happen. Mm. And I think major policymakers and business figures realise that. So Hanson's going to be marginal. But the major parties, I think, can continue to trade on attacks on refugees because it doesn't really have those effects. It it connects with some of that same xenophobic and racist sentiment, but it doesn't undermine the system. And that's the reason why I think we've got harsher and harsher policies. Right. What would happen, John, if we actually, if we increased our refugee intake? Uh-huh. Well, it would have only fairly marginal effects economically. It depends on how much we increased it. But normally our immigration levels have been between about 200 and 250,000 for permanent migration. And of course, on top of that, there are potentially hundreds of thousands of people coming on temporary working visas, 457 visas and so on. So the hundreds of thousands of people who are coming to live and to work here every year is much greater than our, than our refugee intake has ever been. Uh, it was most of the time until recently, 13,750. Compare that with perhaps 250,000 with 457s, maybe 400,000 per year. It's a tiny part. Drop in the bucket. That's right. If we triple that, I did some calculations. If we tripled that to 40,000 
refugee humanitarian intake each year. I did some calculations about what that would mean as an extra group of people. Let's suppose we took a full Bruce Stadium, which holds 25,000 people, Mm -hmm. full capacity. It would mean about an extra 40 people. In the stadium. 40 people in the stadium. 40 people in the stadium. Right. I mean, we've all been in queues longer yeah, than that yeah, at that stadium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so it's, uh, it's negligible, yeah. even if we substantially increase the numbers. Right. Well, if we um, look at Australia's clampdown on refugees and asylum seekers in recent years, how does our attitude compare with other countries Uh, such as those in Europe or Great Britain and America? Mm. Well, uh, much worse. (laughs) And not only do we have worse and harsher policies than any of them, really, uh, we pioneered them. So we started mandatory detention in 1992. Uh, We then removed the limit. There was a 273-day limit that you could keep people in detention. Mm -hmm. That was removed in 1993, 1994. Um, Then in 2001, of course, when the Tampa came, Mm -hmm. again, not coincidentally, on the eve of a federal election, Mm -hmm. uh, we embarked on the Pacific solution, and that is Nauru and Manus Island were opened up as detention centres. Nowhere else in the world, no other European country, has an equivalent of Manus Island and Nauru. No. No one does that. And then, of course, in 2013, again, on the eve of an election that he was going to lose, Kevin Rudd made the announcement that anyone who came by boat to Australia, whatever the justice of their claim and whatever the results of their processing, would never set foot on Australian soil. Mm. And as a result, we've still got perhaps nearly 800 people on Manus and Nauru trapped and unable to ever come here. Yeah, So that's worse than any policy. There are lots of bad policies around the world. Uh, Trump in the United States has obviously made the issue of refugees and migrants coming to the southern border of the United States and trying to to get asylum. He's made that a major issue. The build the wall uh, was a a critical question, and it still is. This year, we had in the United States the longest ever shutdown of government, 35 days, where they didn't pay their employees uh, over the issue of funding for the wall. Mm. So he's made that a major major issue. And there are detention centres in the United States. However, there are also court rulings that are much better than what we've got, even in Trump's America. So, for example, you can't keep children in detention longer than 21 days, Mm. uh, the courts say. There are still very harsh policies, but not as bad as ours. Mm. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Subject ACT on 2XXFM 98.3. My name's Heather Murray and I'm chatting with John Minns from the ANU about migration and its impact on Australia. John, what's the balance between the realities and the threats well, the the threat is, I would say, non-existent. Yeah. Um, the the kinds of fears that I think have been, in many cases, deliberately created about threats from refugees uh, are linked with a number of other fears and insecurities. Obviously, they're linked to the idea that the people coming as refugees might be terrorists. Uh, now, that is 
not true. No one who's come as a refugee has been convicted of a terrorist-related offence. Um, the number of people rejected as refugees for that reason is very small. And in some cases, very dubious. So, for example, people who fought on the Tamil side of the Sri Lankan civil war are quite often rejected as terrorists. But this was a civil war uh, in which, you know, people on both sides uh, fought and pretty dirty civil war as well. But there certainly wasn't a case of terrorism. Mm. Also, it's linked, I think, very often with the association of refugees with uh, Islam, with Muslims, and with all sorts of fears associated with that. Uh, and again, people's fears about that are vastly uh, overstated. I, I read some interesting research that was done both in Europe and in Australia, which asked people, how many, what proportion of the population do you think are Muslims? And normally by a factor of five to seven, they overstated yeah. the reality. Mm -hmm. So in Australia, the actual figure is 2.4% mm. of the population are Muslims. The average answer was 12%. Oh, okay. It's quite a jump. And, and when you ask them what's it going to be in a couple of years, it yeah. becomes even more right. of a jump. So the average answer uh, in Australia of what proportion do you think the population will be Muslims in a couple of years, the answer was 21%. Oh, crikey. The reality is about 3%. Yeah. So the same is the case in pretty much everywhere where the question is asked in Europe and elsewhere. So the, the fear is vastly exaggerated, even if 21% of the population being Muslims was a threat, which I don't think it would be. No. Nevertheless, the perception of threat is vastly greater than the reality. Mm. What are your thoughts then on where we're at and what's over the horizon? I think um, the unfortunate thing is that a great deal of damage to people can be done by these kinds of policies, even though in the end they're ultimately unsustainable. And Europe, for example, Europe has to take more migrants. It has to, otherwise its population will be shrinking and ageing, and it will be terrifically economically destructive. You know, the replacement rate for a natural population under ordinary circumstances, that is not war or famine or whatever, uh, is uh, 2.1 children per woman. That's a natural replacement rate. Yeah. Uh, currently, the European Union has 1.5 oh, fertility rate. Oh, gosh, in trouble. Exactly. Italy has about 1.2, 1.3. It's shrinking very, very mm. fast. They have to take millions of migrants per year just to maintain the population that they have. And if they don't, they will also have a much more ageing population. Mm. Normally, it's thought that you need about three people of working age, uh, that is up to about 64, 65, uh, for every one retiree for that to be sustainable. That's shifting in such a way that in the case of Italy, for example, by 2050, 70% Without migration, 70% of its population will be retirees. Oh, my God. Now, that's not sustainable. So there are those in the Italian government, uh, on the right of the Italian government, who rail against migrants. Yeah. But the economic realities will force migration over time. Yeah. It's not to say that a lot of potential migrants won't be heard in the meantime. No. Well, there's a lot of tough issues there that we're facing. How optimistic are you for the future? I'm an optimist yeah. because I think while the right of politics, in particular the far right, 
organisations like the Alternative for Germany or Viktor Orban, who's a terribly nasty anti-immigrant government in Hungary or the Polish government uh, currently or far-right groups like the National Front in France and so on. While they all rail against migration and they demonstrate against the presence of Muslims in those countries and they do get support on that basis, the interesting thing is that where there have been mobilisations, demonstrations and so on, saying kick the migrants out, kick the Muslims out, no more refugees, the counter-demonstrations have generally been bigger. And you see, for example, that the far-right alternative for, for Germany... In the last elections, the federal elections in 2017, had a big hit with over 12%, I think, of the vote, 12 to 13% of the vote. And for the first time, there were far-right, uh, semi-fascist people in the German parliament for the first time since the war. And it looked like a far-right resurgence. Their polling is now way down. And the remarkable right. thing is that the Greens vote has gone up dramatically briefly, to be the highest of all the parties. Oh, excellent. Nearly 25%. 30% (laughs) currently, at this moment, uh, the polling shows that 30% of those up to the age of 30 in Germany would vote green. Well, let's hope that trend continues. That's right. So there is a a right-wing reaction, but there are also very healthy counter-reactions to it. Mm. Well, that's great. I've been talking with uh, Dr. John Minns, Associate Professor and Distinguished Educator from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU. Thanks for taking time out to talk to us today about uh, migration, John. Thanks very much, Heather. It's a pleasure. You're listening to 2XXFM. And that interview with Dr John Minns brings us to the end of the first in our holiday season of programs taken from our archives. And just a quick update on part of that story. You may have heard that five asylum seekers of over 200 that came to Australia under the now repealed 2019 Medivac laws were released into the community a couple of weeks ago. Lawyers for the remaining detainees will be filing individual claims. No doubt we'll hear more about this developing story in the new year. I'm Hedda Murray and it was great having your company tonight. Join us next week for more stories from your local Canberra community and beyond. (music) 